Well, in this series, we are studying the tabernacle, which is an incredibly important part of the scripture. There are only two chapters about creation in the entire Bible, but there are 42 chapters about the tabernacle plan. And you know why? We talked about it last week. Because it demonstrates God's original pattern for relationship. And the tabernacle foreshadows basically everything else that comes later in the word of God. Now God gave the original pattern for a portable tabernacle to Moses on Mount Sinai. And we read in Exodus chapter 25 that it, this plan, this pattern actually came by the voice of God. God said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, Moses, after the pattern of the tabernacle. Everyone say pattern. And the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Now many, many years later, King David wanted to build a temple, a permanent structure for the Lord. It would have essentially the same uh, floor plan, but it would have some auxiliary rooms and be a little expanded, a little bigger. Uh, but God asked David not to build that temple because David had been a man of war and he left it for his son Solomon. And so in 1 Chronicles 28, David gives the pattern for a permanent temple to his son Solomon in Jerusalem. And this time the Bible says that the pattern, the, the plan for the temple, the permanent structure came by the hand of God. 1 Chronicles 28 verse 19, all this said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me, uh, by the hand of God, even all the works of this pattern. Somebody say pattern. And so there, there is a pattern for this building. It is the building that God designed, unlike anything that man could design. And centuries later again, the writer of Hebrews tells us that these earthly patterns were actually based on a tabernacle plan up in heaven. And so God was actually giving Moses a plan that he already had in a heavenly tabernacle. Hebrews says, uh, the earthly priesthood, they serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. Everyone say pattern. So I think we see the pattern. There's a pattern to the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a fourfold prophetic picture in the word of God. It's a picture of the salvation plan. We talked about that a little bit last week. It's a prophetic picture of Jesus. We're going to discuss that tonight. It's also, a lot of people miss this, it's a prophetic picture of you as an individual, a human being serving God. And it's finally a prophetic picture of prayer and your authority and, and a pattern in prayer. And so uh, the, the whole tabernacle, we, we looked at all this furniture uh, briefly last week and concentrated on three pieces. But over here, uh, the, the tabernacle, you can see the furniture is in the shape of a cross. There's a long beam and there's a short beam that, that comes across in the uh, holy place. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. Uh, I thought it would be easy for some of you that are very kind of detail-oriented and maybe visual-oriented. Um, it might be good to chart it out. And so here, here's the vertical beam of that cross in the tabernacle. The vertical beam shows us God's plan of salvation. And it includes three pieces of furniture, the brazen altar, the brazen laver, and way at the other end, the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, they're, they're in a straight line. And if you follow those three, the pattern is this, that they represent three elements in God's plan. Blood, 
shed on the altar, uh, water where the priests immersed their hands and washed, and then finally, uh, the spirit, uh, that the Shekinah presence of God rested on the uh, 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 Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And so if we look at Jesus, what we have is we have his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The altar represents death. The water represents burial. And, and the resurrection power, the Shekinah glory of God on the Ark of the Covenant, that represents uh, his resurrection power. And then we have in our own lives, and we talked about this last week, we come to an altar of repentance and we die to ourselves on the altar of repentance. That's the first step. You don't get anywhere with God without repentance. And then secondly, we experience baptism in the name of Jesus for the remission, the washing away of our sins. And so we are immersed into water in the name of Jesus. Uh, there's nothing magic about the water. There wasn't then. But there was something supernatural that God enabled to happen in that water. He met the priests in the water when they washed their hands, but he meets us in the waters of baptism. And then finally, uh, at the Ark of the Covenant, the far end of the tabernacle, we, we see uh, the power of the Holy Ghost. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, it dwells in us. So that's the vertical beam of the cross. There's a cross in the tabernacle. And then if you look horizontally, which uh, cuts right across the holy uh, place, uh, in that place you have three articles of furniture. There's the golden candlestick, the altar of incense, and the table of showbread. And so the three physical elements there, of course, are light from the candlestick, and incense burned on the altar of incense, and finally, bread that was eaten by the priests from the table of showbread. If you look at the life of Jesus, those things represent him being the light of the world. They represent him being our uh, intercessor, uh, our great high priest. And, and finally, they represent him being the bread of life. But if you take it into our lives, which we'll do a little bit of next week, we are also a light because we have Jesus in us. And so that represents, that golden candlestick represents our witness that is, the oil of the Holy Ghost pours into us like it was poured into the candlestick. Light shines forth and we are a witness. And then the altar of incense, of course, represents prayer because we also are called uh, to intercede for people just like we did in our prayer time tonight. We're called to stand in the gap and intercede for others. And then finally, uh, the table of showbread represents your relationship with the Word, the bread of life, the bread of God. And uh, it's very, very important. Prayer is talking to God, but the Word is God talking to you, and so both are very important. Now, not everybody is familiar with the tabernacle plan, what it looked like, and we've got a very uh, kind of elementary uh, setup over here to represent it. Not everybody's familiar, and, and furthermore, not everybody has the aptitude, uh, you know, pastors, they, they're kind of weird people. They they get into the, the bars and the curtains and the ropes and the nails and the pegs and all of this stuff in the tabernacle. Normal people don't usually do that. And so for all of you that you're not as familiar with the tabernacle, uh, we'll just take one more look at a little video that uh, kind of shows you a bird's eye view of what the tabernacle would have looked like in the Old Testament. Let's take a look. <laughs> Thank you. 
relationship with humanity. How a holy God could fellowship with sinful human beings. And that's why the furniture of the tabernacle was laid out in the shape of a cross. A long beam and a short beam. But it wasn't just the tabernacle itself. The 12 tribes camped around the tabernacle in the shape of the cross. They went out four different ways. And so their cross was there, if you look down a bird's eye view on the children of Israel as they were encamped in the desert. But it wasn't just that. You remember the story of Moses lifting up the brazen serpent in the wilderness. And when he did that, that was a dramatic portrayal of the cross that if you looked, you could live. And the brazen serpent was uh, made of brass. It was beaten brass. It was in the shape of the fiery serpents that were causing the plague. Jesus became sin. He was lifted up and became sin for us so that we could be forgiven. But it wasn't just that. You remember this one too. When the blood of the Passover lamb was placed on the doorposts and the lintels of the Israelite homes in Egypt. This was when they were slaves. They'd been slaves for over 400 years. And they were instructed to put the blood on the doorposts and the lintels of their homes. And on that night, when the death angel came through to destroy the firstborn in every house of Egypt, because Pharaoh would not let God's people go, when they went out and put that blood on the doorposts of their house, put it on the doorpost, put it on the lintel, everyone who did that, they were actually doing so with the shape of the cross over their home. It was the blood that caused the death angel and the plague to pass over them. Later, when David wrote about his agony and his enemies, he prophetically and precisely described crucifixion in Psalm 22. Now, crucifixion was a brutal form of, uh, of execution that would not be even invented for another thousand years. But David wrote so precisely. He, he, wrote about, uh, he, he wrote about thirsting. And he wrote about enemies surrounding him. And he wrote about them uh, casting lots for his garments. And he, he wrote about all of that. It didn't happen to David. He was writing prophetically. And he even starts Psalm 22 with these words. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It would be a thousand years before crucifixion was invented. But he perfectly described what happened to Jesus. You see, the cross has always been the way to God. And the cross is foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament. But nowhere, brothers and sisters, nowhere is that picture painted any more beautifully or any more accurately than in the tabernacle plan. And tonight I'm so excited to teach you this because it's brilliant and it's beautiful and it's profound. The Gospel of John is my favorite gospel among the gospels. It's unique for many reasons. For one thing, John writes 30 years later than the other three gospel writers because they were all martyred years before. They wrote in the early 60s of the first century. John writes in the early 90s. And so as he writes the words of his gospel, he's the only surviving apostle of the first century church. And his target audience is different. Matthew wrote his gospel to the Jews to show them that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And Matthew's always saying, Jesus did this or said this, that it might be fulfilled. He's proving to the Jews Jesus was their Messiah. And Mark, he writes to the Romans. And, and Mark is showing the Romans uh, who, who had many, many slaves. They were a, a brutal empire that conquered everyone. 
He's showing Jesus as a uh, servant. And, and he uses the word straightway all the time. Straightway Jesus did this. And straightway he went here. And straightway this happened. And he's showing uh, the Romans as Jesus, Jesus as a servant on a mission uh, accomplishing something. And, and Mark uh, records these words, of course, that the Son of Man did not come to be served like the Romans. He came to serve and to give, gave his li- give his life a ransom for many. And then you've got Luke. Uh, Luke writes about Jesus, the Son of Man, and he writes to the Greeks. And the Greeks are highly educated. And so Luke, he gives a chronological uh, view of Jesus' life. And I think there's like 2,500 words in the Gospel of Luke, and he lays it all out, and it's, it's beautiful. And then uh, Luke writes a sequel that you know is the book of Acts. But John doesn't just write to the Jews or to the Romans or to the Greeks. John writes 30 years after those three to the apostolic church as a whole. And so 90% of John's gospel is unique. No parables in John, but many conversations in John. Uh, in, In John, Jesus talks with Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, Mary and Martha, Peter, on and on, many conversations. And Jesus is always talking about his identity to them, who he is and and what he can do. And and John is very selective even about the miracles he records. Um, Some are unique only to him. You would not know about the raising of Lazarus from the dead if it hadn't been for the gospel of John. It's not recorded anywhere else. And then when John does record miracles, he typically twins a miracle with something Jesus said and, and, and puts them together. And it's, uh, for example, when Jesus, uh, when he resurrected Lazarus from the dead, Jesus then says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so uh, miracles and teaching are twinned together in John. So it's a, a really amazing book. And only in John does Jesus talk at such length about his identity. So it's a, a masterpiece of revelation. It identifies the one and only God, the true and living God, who came to earth in a body of flesh. But, this is so awesome. There's one more reason that John's gospel is unique. And that's because, as you read John's gospel, you can clearly see the tabernacle plan laid out from beginning to end in John's gospel. It's amazing. And it gets started with these words. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, now when, when John says he dwelt among us, he uses a very specific word, uh, skenos, and, and it means to tent or encamp, to occupy, to reside, or to tabernacle. John literally starts his gospel by saying, that the Word was made flesh and He tabernacled among us. Jesus was the tabernacle in a body of flesh. All the beauty and all the power of every implement and piece of furniture in the tabernacle, it resided in Jesus. John intends to show you something as you read through his gospel. He intends to show you that the tabernacle of the Old Testament literally painted a prophetic picture of Jesus. Only in John's gospel does Jesus say this. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty-six years was this temple in building, and you think you're going to rear it up again in three days. Watch this. But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. 
it wasn't just some allegorical, metaphorical sense. Jesus literally was God tabernacled, templed in a body of flesh. That's what John's trying to prove to us. And so as you walk through the Gospel of John, this is so amazing. I got so stuck in all of this stuff because it just keeps, it's like chewing gum. The longer you chew on it, the bigger it gets. It's just amazing. The first piece of furniture that you encountered when you went into the tabernacle was that brazen altar. That was where sacrifice was offered. And the very first thing you encounter in the Gospel of John is this declaration from John the Baptist. The next day, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Now don't miss that. Lambs were sacrificed on that brazen altar right there. Lambs shed their blood on that brazen altar. And so a lamb sacrificed is the same. It's a synonym. It's signaling to us that John is talking about that brazen altar. That's the first thing you encounter in his gospel is this ministry of John the Baptist and John's declaration that Jesus isn't just another prophet. He's not just another teacher. But this is the Lamb of God who's going to be given as a sacrifice for sin. So even though you might not notice it, we just encountered the brazen altar in the Gospel of John. So now we, we go from the brazen altar and, and we start looking for the next piece of furniture, which is the brazen laver. And sure enough, the brazen laver uh, in type makes an appearance in the Gospel of John because the brazen laver is where priests washed. And we don't have to look very far before John just starts rapid fire uh, telling us several events that involve water. In chapter 1, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And in chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. But guess what? John makes this note that Jesus uses six huge water pots that held 20 to 30 gallons apiece. And they were water pots specially made because they held water that the Jews used for ceremonial washing. They called it mikvah. We would call it baptism. It was ceremonial washing. Do you understand that Jesus used water that was used for baptism to make that wine at that wedding in Cana of Galilee? And then in chapter 3, we come to a very famous conversation. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, who's a ruler of the Jews, and he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again of water and of the Spirit or you can't enter into the kingdom of God. You, you've got to do it this way, Nicodemus. You have to be born of the water and of the Spirit. Now, Nicodemus was an elder of the Jews. When somebody said born of water, that's a phrase that Nicodemus would immediately identify. That's mikvah. Because they would immerse people. They, I've been in Israel and seen the, the mikvahs. They're, they're like a big square thing sometimes. And, and people walk down stairs into them. And they walk until they are completely submerged. So Nicodemus knew what mikvah, what ceremonial washing was. He knew what baptism, that's what we would call it. He knew what that was. He knows exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says you must be born of the water and of the Spirit. That's in John. 
Now, you might not see it as you just read through the Gospel of John, but what we're encountering is we're starting to walk through the tabernacle. We've already seen the Lamb of God that would be sacrificed on the altar, the brazen altar for our sins, and we've already seen the laver, the washing. In chapter 4 of John, Jesus has another uh, event that happens. He tells a sinful woman at a well in Samaria, I am the living water. All who drink of me will never thirst again. The first few chapters of John, after John the Baptist makes that declaration about the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, it's just water, water, water everywhere. In chapter 5, Jesus heals a paralyzed man who has waited for 38 years for the moving of the water at the pool of Bethesda. So we have just encountered in the Gospel of John a beautiful portrait of the brazen labor and laver, and now we proceed from the courtyard of the tabernacle and we go in behind the first curtain and we go into the holy place and we're looking for our next piece of furniture, which is the table of showbread. And we don't get very far before John recounts this miracle where Jesus multiplied bread and fishes and fed the 5,000. And then, like John is so wont to do in his gospel, Jesus just doesn't multiply bread, but then he begins to teach about being the bread of life. John is painting a picture of Jesus being the table of showbread. John chapter 6, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth light, Life under the world. And then they said to him, Lord, if that's you, if that's true, evermore give us this bread. That's where that came from in the Bible. Evermore. Evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, you don't have to go get it or buy it. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. And he continues, same chapter, in verse 51, he said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh. I am the bread on the table of showbread. The bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And so we're walking our way through the gospel of John. And we've just encountered the table of showbread and in the tabernacle, in the holy place, if you turned around from the table of showbread 180 degrees and looked behind you, you would encounter the golden candlestick. And it gave light to the holy place. And once again, we don't have to look very far. We're walking through the tabernacle in the Gospel of John and we don't have to look very far before John recounts Jesus' sermon about being the light of the world and then... In addition to the sermon, Jesus illustrates the sermon by opening the eyes of a man who was blind from birth. John chapter 8 verse 12. Then spake Jesus again to them saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He said in verse 5 of chapter 9, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Do you know why our world is so dark and messed up today? It's because they have rejected the light of the world who is Jesus Christ. And without His light, they end up dabbling in darkness and they end up with darkness overtaking and overcoming them. Now in the very next chapter, uh, John chapter 8, then John chapter 9, Jesus, He doesn't just talk about being the light of the world. 
he goes to this blind man and this man has been blind since birth and everybody wants to blame him or blame his family or blame his parents because somebody must have done something wrong if this man has been born blind. And so they're looking for somebody to blame. Can I tell you, Jesus isn't looking for anybody to blame. He's looking for somebody to heal. You may have only encountered people looking to blame you for what's wrong in your life. Jesus isn't looking to blame you. He's looking to heal you. He's looking to deliver you. He's looking to restore you. And so Jesus goes to this man and he heals him. And you know this story. He puts clay on his eyes and tells him to go wash. All, all of that business. And, and, and then they get this man and they say, um, this guy that healed you, he's a sinner. This guy that healed you, he's a false prophet. This Jesus who did this supposed miracle, we don't think too much of him. And here's that man's answer. He said, whether he be a sinner or no, I don't know that. That's above my pay grade to answer. I can't tell you whether he's a good prophet or a bad prophet, whether he's the Messiah or not. I can't tell you anything. I can just tell you this after my encounter with Jesus, that whereas I was blind, now I see. The light of the world came in to my life. Well, I have a similar testimony because I may not be able to answer everybody's argumentative position or everybody's debating kind of question. I might be, I, I might just shake my head and pull out my hair trying to do all of that. But here's what I do know, that this Jesus entered my life and once I was a sinner and now I'm set free. Once some of you were addicts and now you're free. Once some of you were alcoholics and today you don't even desire that anymore. Anymore. Why? Because you were so good and so strong and you followed everybody's advice? No. Because you had one moment when the light of the world popped open your spiritual life and you can see. That's what happened to that blind man. So we have, if you're paying attention, we've just walked all the way through the tabernacle from the brazen altar, past the brazen laver, past the table of showbread to the golden candlestick and we're in the holy place, that, that middle structure. And, and, and there's one more piece of furniture in the holy place, and it's called the altar of incense. And it was here that the high priest of Israel prayed for that nation. And as the high priest prayed for the nation, he wore a special breastplate that had 12 precious stones one stone to represent each one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So literally the symbolism is this, that the high priest of Israel is carrying the people of Israel on his heart as he prays. And so one more time, John is literally painting a picture here. Uh, we're intended to notice this. And one more time, we don't have to look very far before John begins to portray Jesus as our high priest. The first element we come in contact with is in this little story in John chapter 12 when Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and she wiped his feet with her hair. And when she did, the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. It was like an incense that began to float through the air. And you could smell the beauty of of her worship because she gave something very costly. I'd like to take a little break in Bible study right now because every time we worship God, it fills the room with His presence.
And so rather than just kind of go through a Bible study, which is kind of like a little religious lecture, I would like to let Jesus kind of move on some lives and hearts here tonight. So if you would do what Mary did, if you would just offer him something that's a little costly, maybe something that puts some emotional energy under it, maybe something that causes you to lift up your hands, maybe something that causes you to overcome kind of your shyness and just lift up your voice in the sanctuary and bless his name because when you give him a costly praise, the odor of that, the incense of that, the aroma of that begins to fill a room and God comes close and where his anointing is and his presence is and the incense of worship is, God can do amazing things. Now that was a good little filler, but I wasn't talking about a little filler. If you could put your heart under that, if you could put your mind with that, if you could use your vocabulary and lift up some words to Jesus, words of love and adoration and worship and praise because He is here. The high priest is here. The one who intercedes for us, He is here tonight. I worship you, Jesus. Oh, I give you praise. I lift you up. I pour my praise out on you. I pour my praise out on you. I worship you, God. I worship you, God. And you hardly get past that event when you arrive at Jesus praying after a conversation with His disciples. We call it the Last Supper. Immediately after that, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prays for them and for us, everyone who would ever follow him. Now, we call his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, we say, that's the Lord's Prayer. And we talk about that, and that's wonderful. But really, when Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, that's actually the disciples' prayer. He was teaching us how to pray. But this, in John 17, is the Lord's Prayer. This is where Jesus interceded for us. Look at this. It's, it's so powerful and beautiful. And we're just going to hit two verses. He said, I pray for them. I pray not for the world. Now that's a strange statement. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine. Do you understand that God has a special interest in you? Because you're his child? Oh, He loves the world. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So God loves the world. But God has a special interest in His people and He intercedes for us. John 17 verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, not just the 12 disciples, now 11 because of Judas' betrayal. Jesus wasn't just praying for them, the ones that followed Him in that day. He said, but I also pray for them also which shall believe on me through their word. As one disciple preaches to another, as one disciple wins another, as one disciple witnesses to another, and the church grows. Jesus said, I'm not just praying for the ones who serve me now. I'm praying for everyone that will be, believe, will be believing on me and will follow me because of their word. So our heavenly high priest, that's who he is. He's first anointed with incense by Mary. Then he intercedes for his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And finally, our heavenly high priest ends up standing in judgment before the Jewish high priest. It's a powerful picture of that piece of furniture right there. That little tall altar. 
the altar of incense. And I've got good news for you. I don't know how this works. I don't understand it all. But I can read scripture. The Bible tells me that our heavenly high priest is still interceding for us. To intercede means to stand in the gap for somebody. That's what we do when we go to prayer. God, that isn't right. God, that person's sick. God, that situation is harmful. And so we stand in the gap and we intercede. Do you understand you have a heavenly high priest who is still alive today? See, he didn't die on the cross. The writer of Hebrews says, Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. There is never a situation that you will ever encounter that Jesus doesn't step in and stand in the gap for you. There is never an enemy that comes against you that Jesus doesn't step up and say, I'm standing in the gap for this one. This is my child. This is my son, my daughter. And Jesus intercedes for us. He stands in the gap for us. Oh my goodness. John means for us to notice this, brothers and sisters, that he's painting a beautiful picture that Jesus is actually the embodiment, the fulfillment, every piece of furniture in the tabernacle, Jesus embodied that. Now you know this, that between that holy place and the holy of holies, that, that little cube room at the end, there hung a heavy veil. And only the high priest could go behind that heavy veil. And he could only do it on one day of a year, one time on the great day of atonement. Of all the features of the tabernacle, all the ropes and the pegs and the bars and the boards and all the furniture, of all the features of the tabernacle, this veil best represented the separation between a holy God and sinful mankind. But I think you might remember Something happened to that veil on the day that Jesus died. Mark records this. Jesus cried with a loud voice and he gave up the ghost. And when he cried, it is finished. The veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. No man nor machine tore that veil. God took it and ripped it from the top to the bottom and pulled it open. The writer of Hebrews caught the significance of it and he said this, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us, through the veil, watch, that is to say, His flesh. Jesus wasn't just the altar and the laver and the candlestick and the showbread and the altar of incense. Jesus was the veil. His flesh, when it was torn open, something happened in the supernatural realm and that old system of the law and that old system of sacrifices and that old system of priesthood and feast days and festivals. It was like God took it and He just ripped it apart. Not to throw it on the trash heap, but so we could enter in where before only a high priest could walk in. Do you understand that the church, we are kings and priests unto God and you don't have to be the least bit backward about walking boldly into His presence.
presence, with your worship, with your prayer, with your needs, whatever you got, Jesus wants to hear from you because the veil has been opened and today you can walk right into the middle of the glory of God. You can lift up your hands and feel what the high priest felt in the holy of holies. You can lift up your hands and pray and God hears you just like he heard the high priest of Israel in that little cube room. Oh, I wish you'd do that for a minute. <laughs> the veil has been rent. There is no block between you and God. There is no wall between you and a holy creator. There is nothing left. He welcomes you into his presence. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, my. <laughs> it was just dead, dry, boring ritual in the Old Testament, but we come running for His presence in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they offered animals. In the New Testament, we offer our whole life. Our bodies are a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they had all kinds of rituals to say and do, but in the New Testament, we give our words we don't just offer the fruit of our fields. We offer the fruit of our lips, giving praise to His name. That's the sacrifice that we bring in the New Testament. Oh. So what would you ever do standing outside feeling like God didn't want you? What would you ever do standing outside feeling like He didn't love you? When he tore open that old ceremonial system and he welcomed every one of us in. We weren't Jewish people. We didn't have any claim on that building. We didn't have any claim on any of that furniture. Those priests didn't act on our behalf. Those sacrifices and feast days and festivals had nothing to do with us. And they went through every year and sin was pushed ahead for one more year when the high priest put the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. That's what they had. We had none of that. But God didn't just love the Jewish people. He loved the whole world. And so that's what Calvary did. Calvary tore down the middle wall of partition that was between Jew and Gentile. And when that veil was torn and when his flesh was torn, we get to walk straight in to the presence of God because of the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. That veil of separation, when it was torn, it signified that anyone now can enter into His presence. But brothers and sisters, just like in the tabernacle or the temple, if you want to get into God's presence, if you want to be God's child, if you want to go to God's heaven, you've got to follow God's pattern to get there. That's what this is all about. Now there was only one piece of furniture inside the Holy of Holies. It was a glorious piece of furniture. It was this little box. The Ark of the Covenant. Beautiful little piece of furniture. It was a golden box that inside of it, it contained three trophies of God's intervention in the life of Israel. Inside this box were the tables of stone on which the Ten Commandments were written. Inside this box was a golden pot containing manna. Now manna, if you didn't eat it, consume it, in one day it would spoil. The only time that was different was on the Sabbath. Then it would keep for two days. But this golden pot that had manna, 
It had fresh manna in it for years and years and decades and decades because it was a supernatural trophy of God's intervention in Israel's life. And the third thing that was in here was Aaron's rod that budded. It was an old dead walking stick, but when Aaron had a challenge to his leadership, God, he allowed the rod of Aaron to bud, and that signified God's favor on, on Aaron. And so that was all in the Ark of the Covenant. It was a beautiful box overlaid with gold. But the box was not as important as the lid on the top of the box. You see, the Ark of the Covenant served as the only physical manifestation of God on the earth in the Old Testament. Because His Shekinah presence dwelt between those two golden cherubim that sat facing each other on the lid of the ark, which was called the mercy seat. And that lid, that mercy seat, that was where the high priest, one day a year, would sprinkle the blood that completed the work of the tabernacle and the priesthood and the feast days and all those thousands of sacrifices. One day a year, he would go behind that veil and on that lid of that golden box, he would sprinkle the blood. In his gospel, John has literally taken us through the tabernacle plan. I hope the next time you're reading through the gospel of John, you stop to underline some verses and take note because he literally shows us how Jesus fulfills the role of the brazen altar and the brazen laver and the table of showbread, the golden candlestick, the altar of incense. Jesus even fulfills the role of the veil when it's written to, and there's other things Jesus says in one place, I am the door of the sheepfold. He's the door to get in the tabernacle. It's all there in the Gospel of John. But there's one piece of furniture left, and it is the most important piece of furniture. And we encounter this piece of furniture in a strange place because Jesus has already been crucified. And Jesus has already shed His blood. And Jesus has already been taken off the cross, wrapped in grave clothes, taken to a tomb and buried. And only then do we encounter this very last piece of furniture in the Gospel of John. John chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and she looked into the sepulcher. And she seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. That's amazing. The one at the head and the one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. When Mary looked into the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, she saw the most familiar silhouette in all of Hebrew theology, in all of the Jewish religion. Only one other place do we find two angels facing each other sitting on a slab and it's the Ark of the Covenant. It's in the tabernacle. That place is the mercy seat that sits here where the blood was sprinkled and where the voice of God was heard and where the Shekinah presence of God rested. Do you know why the body of Jesus Christ was able to come out of the grave on Easter Sunday morning? It's because his body also contained the Shekinah presence, the glory of Almighty God. 
That's why he could come out of the tomb. You see, on that weekend, those two angels were standing guard over the place where he laid. Blood had seeped out of his body through those grave clothes and stained that slab in that tomb. It looked exactly like this. It looked exactly like that. And when Mary looked in that tomb on Easter Sunday morning and saw those angels sitting just like that, one at the head and one at the foot where the body of Jesus had lain, she suddenly understood something, that this Jesus, he wasn't just her rabbi and he wasn't just her teacher. He wasn't just a prophet or a miracle worker. That literally was God robed in a body of flesh. And I close with this scripture. The writer of Hebrews, many years later, picks this up and he says this. The Holy Ghost, this signifying. That the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. As long as this tabernacle was standing, and as long as they were still going through all these rituals, and as long as they were still coming to each piece of furniture and doing everything they did with all of those pieces of furniture, as long as this tabernacle was still standing, it wasn't open for us. That was the Jewish tabernacle. The way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest because the first tabernacle was still standing. The Old Testament was still in force. God only had turned his attention to the Jews. It was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him which did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Even the priests that did that, even the priests that were part of that, it couldn't make them perfect. Think how little it could do for an average person in the nation of Israel if it couldn't even make the people that were offering the sacrifices perfect. They stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. There came a moment when God totally reformed that old tabernacle system and he did something new. And we know what it is. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place. Not every year, not every day for the daily sacrifice, not every one of seven annual feasts, no, not any of that. He entered in once into the holy place and He obtained eternal redemption for us. And that is why you can see the cross everywhere in the Bible. It's because it took thousands of lambs. It took thousands of priests. It took thousands of feast days and, and all of the festivals over many, many decades and centuries. It took thousands of them. And it never accomplished anything perfect. But it took one Savior, one crucifixion, one cross of Calvary. And that blood is enough 
to heal anyone, to save anyone, to deliver anyone, to free anyone, to redeem anyone. That blood is enough to take everybody in this building and in every other building in this city to heaven if they will serve God and trust Him because the blood is enough. And I thank God that I'm not locked up in some ritual, some religion that takes me way back. This would have been glorious. I'm sure it was very impressive. But I'm glad I'm not here trying to offer something on an Ark of the Covenant and then have to walk out and never come back for a year. That's what that Old Testament priest did. He walked out of the uh, Holy of Holies and he couldn't see that glorious presence of God for a full year. And all he could do was describe it to the other priests and describe it to the Levites and describe it to his family and describe it to his neighbors because he was the only one ever allowed to see that little gold box and that presence of God that lit up the Holy of Holies. Not so in the New Testament church. In the New Testament church, we don't have a box with God's presence on it. We have a heart with God's presence in it. We don't have a temple with a bunch of sacrifices. We have hands that we can lift up and mouths that we can open and give God a sacrifice anytime, anywhere, for any reason. I'm done. Would you lift up your hands and would you lift up your voice one more time? And At the end of Bible study, would you give Jesus praise? Because He came and tabernacled among us. When we didn't have anything but walls and fences between us and God, between us and heaven, between us and holiness, He came and He tabernacled among us. He became our tabernacle so we don't get to him through a ritual we don't get to him through a priest we don't get to him through a ceremony we get to Jesus through him through his flesh through his blood <laughs> oh, would you stand and let your hands keep going and fill this room with praise one more time at the end of Bible study would you do that just give Jesus honor and glory and praise He's so worthy of your praise. Thank you, God. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I give you praise. I give you praise. <laughs> Oh, thank you, Jesus.